0: Uh, be up here with you guys, so definitely count it a privilege and a blessing to be able to do so. Um, We're going to go to John's Gospel, John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22 tonight, uh, titling this Jesus the Temple of God. It's probably a pretty familiar portion of Scripture for most of you, I would imagine, but uh, if you can make your way in your Bible to John chapter 2, verses starting in verse 13, and Stand if you're able to out of reverence to God and to his word, then we'll, we'll go ahead and read it together and get started. So, John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, the word of the Lord reads, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of God. Let's go to our God one more time in prayer before we start. Our God and Father, we thank you again so much as we've already prayed, Lord, just for your your grace. Uh, Your grace, Lord, is again, as um, my brother already prayed and as we learned this morning that you would uh, that you would take notice of us, that you would love us, that you would pour out your grace in choosing us, though we don't deserve it, Lord, um, and making us your own people, that you would send your own son to be the one who pays the price of our sin, that we might become right in your eyes, Lord. We, we thank you so much. We could never Thank you enough for your grace and your mercy that you've shown towards us in Jesus Christ, Father, and Lord. We thank you for your grace and giving us a place to come together to worship you, Lord. And we just thank you. Uh, we thank you as we've come and sung songs of praise and prayed and and, and had times of fellowship, Lord. And um, we're just so thankful for it all. And now as we open up your Word together, Lord, we pray that you would just focus our hearts on your on your Word. That you would help us, Lord, by your Spirit to understand what it says and. Apply it to our hearts, Lord, that, as my brother just prayed, that we wouldn't walk out of here the same, Lord, but we would be changed as we look to your word, Lord, and as you touch us through it. So be with us, Lord. Uh, help me to cut it right, to speak the truth of your word correctly, Lord. And uh, again, we'll just, we'll give you the praise for it, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll go ahead and have a seat there. You know, there is uh there's, Perhaps, I think, no greater work of Christology, which is the study of the person of Jesus Christ, all of the glorious implications of his word and of his works, there's no greater work, possibly, of Christology than what we have contained, I think, in the Gospel of John. In John's Gospel, he presents Jesus... Uh, through various means. There's sayings by and about Jesus. There's teachings and discourses by Jesus. We have the high priestly prayer of Jesus there. Uh, Various works and miracles of of Jesus, and and John presents him in this way for the purpose of holding up Jesus in a way as to present him as the glorious Son of God, the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior and King who's come into the world. Uh, He is the one whom Israel had been waiting for. He's the one whom all of redemptive history has anticipated. He's the one, Jesus, to whom all of the Old Testament points to and is fulfilled by, including the temple itself, with all of its rituals and practices, with all of its symbolisms and significances, as I hope we'll see a little bit tonight. There's various themes that run throughout John's gospel, and he he may have had some various purposes in writing his gospel. However, one theme and purpose he does state explicitly in the 20th chapter. In chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. These things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing have life in his name. If we go back to the first chapter in verses 9 through 13 there in the prologue to John's Gospel, uh, he he tells us something very, pretty much the same thing. After telling us there that Jesus had come into the world, uh, he says that Jesus comes into his own creation, that world which was made through him, and having come to his own people, Israel, those who should have recognized all signs pointing to him as the Messiah, and yet seeing did not receive him, seeing did not accept him. He tells us, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, which is essentially to say the same thing as what we just read in 2031, that by believing you may have life, eternal life, salvation in his name. And so John in a very intentional and meticulous manner, presents this Jesus in one way through these various signs that demonstrate his messianic qualifications and authority to the purpose that those would, who would hear and believe might come to faith in the Son of God, attaining that adoption as God's children and everlasting life in the glorious name of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, there has been some debate, and I won't go into it, but there has been some debate uh, over time, over whether or not this incident that we read in John's Gospel is intended as a messianic sign pointing to Jesus as the the Messiah there. Um, But I think when we really look at it and understand the implications of what Jesus is saying and doing here, it's, it's very clear that it's meant to point us to him as the saving Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah. So as we discuss the events surrounding the temple cleansing here in our text, um, you know, there's a lot that we can learn, a lot that we can take from it. There's some important points that we can take and apply from it to ourselves in our day and time. And we'll take a moment and, and talk about a couple of those things, perhaps. However, ultimately, as we look at this, what we should understand as we look at the text here is what it's telling us is that Jesus Christ is the true and greater God. Temple. Uh, Jesus Christ replaces the Jerusalem temple in that it's He who ultimately comes to fulfill every aspect of Old Testament Judaism. All of the people, the events, the festivals, the types, the shadows, the symbols, even the temple itself. Jesus is often presented as the one greater in the scriptures. Uh, in Matthew 12, 6, actually, in a different circumstance, he tells he, he tells the people there, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. He's often presented as the one greater, and he is the true and greater temple, as we hopefully will see. So as we look at the text, we'll look at it under a few different headings, and we'll start here uh, in verse 13. And consider here the importance of the timing of the event and when this takes place. So if you want to look at your Bibles again with me, we'll start in chapter 2, verse 13, and uh, consider again the importance of the timing here. It says in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in his gospel, John mentions three, possibly four, Passovers that Jesus attends to, this being the the first at the outset of his public ministry here. And Jewish males uh, at the time were required, or or at the very least expected, to observe Passover and the other feasts and all um, at Jerusalem. And so Jesus, again, you know, fulfilling every aspect of Old Testament Judaism, goes to Jerusalem to observe and take part in the Passover. Now, a Passover, of course, as I'm sure many of you are aware of it, it observes and commemorates the Lord's salvation of his people in the Exodus when he brought judgment upon Egypt and he delivered his people. And God there, he was very specific in how they were to observe the Passover and the events surrounding it. In Exodus chapter 12, verses 3 through 14, we read of the the institution of the Passover there when it happened. And I'm going to read some of the verses. I'll skip through it. But in Exodus 12, we read, and starting in verse 3, God says, through Moses, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. In verse 5, he continues and says, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. In verse 12 he says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. So as God would bring judgment upon the land of Egypt by way of the death of the firstborn in, in all of the land, he provides a way of salvation for his people by way of the death of a sacrifice, the, the shed blood of the lamb sacrificed in the place of the people, in their place, would protect them from God's righteous judgment, as he would redeem his people. He would lead them in exodus from bondage in Egypt and bring them to himself to serve him as his covenant people, enjoying the blessings of fellowship and communion with him. And they were to remember this year after year. They were to remember it not in a way, of course, that they would just recollect mentally that, oh yeah, I remember that God would do this, but they would reenact, really. They would make the sacrifice, and they would really come to, really you know, thinking about this, it's in the same sense as we, uh, we take communion each week, which we'll do today. You know, We don't just mentally say, well, God did this for me. His body was broken. His blood was shed. But we actually, in a sense, we take part in that. You know, there's, It's more than just a mental recollection. So uh, they were to remember this year after year. And as time progressed through time, over time, this came to be observed at the Jerusalem temple there. And so this was to be a time of remembrance of what God had done for them, a time of worship and adoration, a time of solemn reverence before the Lord. However, as we'll see, there were, there were these problems, these issues that were distracting and profaning the worship that was due the Lord, particularly as it took place within the temple. And so let's, let's continue on in verse 14 there, and let's consider then, the importance of the place. If you look at your Bible, John writes there in verse 14, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, it's important that we we take a moment to discuss the significance of the temple, and that's going to help us really, I think, to understand uh, not only the significance of the events that are unfolding in the, in the, in the story here in the text, but it's also going to help paint a greater picture of Christ as the one who ultimately fulfills uh, everything that the temple symbolized and pointed to. I, I do believe, I think, it's not a stretch to say that it's quite easy for modern-day Western you know, Christians like ourselves to easily undervalue the concept of the temple or at the very least, maybe to find the idea of it something foreign or odd, or uh, you know, perhaps the very mention of a temple. It might cause some of us to envision, envision something out of a, a movie scene, or to relate the idea to a people of history past, or those disengaged from modern society. It's just very easy for, for us, I think, in our culture to undervalue the idea and the concept of the temple, and, and we need to really orient ourselves to the importance of the concept of temple as it's presented in the scripture. You see, the reality is that the temple or temple is an extremely important concept and theme that runs throughout the entirety of the Bible. And although we don't have time, of course, for like a thorough study of it, um, at least a brief survey of some of the historical uh, points and some of the purposes of it will, will help us nonetheless in understanding our text. Well, very simply put, You know, the temple represents God's presence among his people. It's representing God's presence with his people. It's a place where worship of God through various means and manners, uh, uh, various religious practices which were ordained by God were to take place, such as the sacrifices and offerings such as those associated with Passover there. And we see really from the, from the very beginning of Scripture, we see the theme of temple being presented. In fact, the Garden of Eden uh, seems to serve as a type of first temple sanctuary there, where, where God dwells among his people in the newly created world. Uh, in fact, even the, the command to Adam to work and keep uh, the garden there, I believe those are the same words in Maybe my brother can correct me if I'm wrong later, but I believe those are the same words that are used for the priest in the temple to serve and guard the temple. And so Eden itself, the garden in the newly created world, seems to be this picture of a temple sanctuary where God's people, where he where God dwells among his people, and his people worship and commune with God there. And then although, you know, although God he doesn't need a physical temple, Acts twenty seventeen verses twenty-four and twenty-five tells us that. Paul writes, or excuse me, Luke writes in Acts. Uh, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so God doesn't necessarily need a physical temple, nor can he be contained to a physical temple. First uh, Kings eight twenty seven, Solomon, dedicating the temple there, says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. So although God doesn't need a physical temple, and although he can't be contained to a temple, we do find God in the scriptures commanding his people to build him a temple. In the latter half of the Exodus, specifically chapters 26 and 27, we find God giving the command to the people to build the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, of course, is a tent-like structure. It's a uh, movable sanctuary, a mobile temple, if you will, that would travel with the people. And, and, and when you read that, what you find is that God's, he, he, again, he's very specific. He's very precise in his instructions and how this temple is to be constructed and how he is to be approached and worshiped by his people in it. Everything about this temple spoke to the absolute holiness of God, and the separation of sinful man and holy God. The layout of the temple itself included outer courts, which were separated by a veil leading into a holy place where certain things would happen, which itself was separated by another veil leading into the most holy place, there where the Ark of the, of the Covenant would sit, there the place where God said, my, my glory will, will dwell, and there I will meet with you, and up to the place where... Uh, only one man, the high priest, once a year could enter into the presence of God there, not without the blood of a sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of the people. Everything pointed to the reality that man needed someone to stand between himself and his God. Man needed an intercessor or a mediator, and we'll talk about in a moment what those things are, but, but everything pointed to the fact that, that man needed someone to go between him and his God. And this being vividly portrayed by those, even with those separations within the temple and the worship practices that were conducted there. Well, if we fast forward through history a little bit, we find David desiring to build for the Lord a temple in 2 Samuel 7, another important portion of scripture. And there, David, he he says, you know, to paraphrase, I'm here, how, how can I sit here in this palace? And the Ark of God sits in a tent out there, and he has this desire to build a permanent temple. And As noble and wonderful a thought that it is, God, for for certain reasons, doesn't allow it, but rather says that his son, Solomon, would build the temple. And that's exactly what happens. Solomon undertakes the task. He builds a very beautiful temple. The ark is brought into the temple. You can read of this in 1 Kings 8. And as the ark is brought in, we're told that the glory of God descends upon the temple, fills the temple to the point, it says, that the priests are unable to stand and minister And as Solomon addresses the people, he he prays to dedicate the temple. He describes it as a place where the name of the Lord would be proclaimed. The name of God, the name of the Lord, representing God in in all of his glory and splendor. The name of of God, and thus the glory of God being proclaimed from his temple. Well, if we go a little bit further in history there, we, we find that this temple, because of the sin and rebellion of the people, is destroyed by the Babylonians. That, that place which represented uh, God's presence with them, that place which was the very center of their faith and religious practice, that, uh, this place where God dwelt among them, uh, it was destroyed because of their sin, and, and the people are taken off into exile into Babylon. And as they're in exile, far removed from, the, from where the temple stood, The Lord, through the prophet Ezekiel, he makes a a very compelling statement about the reality of the temple. In Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 16, God says through the prophet, he says, Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. He says, I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. He, go, he goes further in that passage of Scripture to speak on the implication of that ston- statement, but just notice what he says there. You know, to a people far removed from the center of their faith and worship in, uh, that was located in the Jerusalem temple, God says, he himself, you know, I myself will be your sanctuary. I myself will be your temple. Interestingly, J- Jesus in John 4, if we go in John's gospel a little bit further, he says something very similar to that. Uh, to that extent to the Samaritan woman there about the place of worship where he tells her it's not going to be confined to a physical place, but true worship would be that which is conducted, it it occurs in the spirit. And we see the same concept concerning Jesus and the revelation uh, as the the temple in the new creation, which we'll get to shortly. But the temple, temple, of course, it was eventually rebuilt in the course of time. uh, The people were allowed back into their land. They rebuilt the temple. It was expanded upon greatly by by Herod, and it was the second temple in which Jesus' confrontation with the Jews took place. So what then is the significance of this earthly structure, the temple? Well, the temple represents, it symbolizes, it shows us uh, many things. A couple of them we'll just go over really quickly. Well, first, the temple, it teaches us that man cannot simply approach God As he is. Man cannot just simply approach God as we are. Uh, This God, as we read in Scripture, is a consuming fire of absolute and perfect holiness. And because of our sin, to approach him in our fallen condition would lead to utter destruction. We would be, to put it one way, we would be crushed by the weight of his glory. And so God devised this temple as a means that would allow his people into his presence in a mediated way. And and really, so first and foremost, uh, the temple, what we should understand in in one way, in many ways, it, it represents grace. It represents grace as God allows people back into his presence, back into communion with him, that which was lost due to the fall. This being portrayed in the temple, ultimately realized later in the new creation. The temple... Again, it represents the dwelling place of God with man. This is, it represents his presence among his people. It's the place where God had prescribed, if you will, for man to approach and meet with his God, was there at the temple. It's a place of prayer uh, where man approaches God and seeks God through prayer. In fact, Jesus in uh, Mark eleven seventeen for one, when he cleanses the temple a second time at the end of his public ministry there, he actually says, quoting from the book of Isaiah, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? The temple is, a, is the place of intercession and mediation. This is portrayed really through the actions of the priests, intervening on behalf of the people in order to mediate, which is to resolve a dispute within a relationship between holy God and sinful man. It was at the temple through these practices that God had ordained, that the the priests would intercede on behalf of the people. They would act as, if you will, the the mediators um, through these various ways, mediating the relationship between holy God and sinful man. It was the place, the temple, where through the blood of a sacrifice that God's wrath was propitiated. And what that means is that God's Righteous anger, his wrath against sin is, is turned away, it's satisfied, it's appeased. You know, the, the temple is the place where sacrifices were made in order to atone for the sins of the people. It's it's to put it simply, it's the place where sin is dealt, to, dealt with through the offerings of these sacrifices. It's the place that was filled with God's glory, the place where God's glory and his name was proclaimed. Between the, before the nations. And all of this, again, all of this points to the importance of holiness and purity within the temple. Uh, the temple is the place for true and right worship of God. It's the place where, where such worship is to be proclaimed before the nations so that, that they too might come to know the true and living God, that they too might come to be reconciled to him in the way in which he has prescribed that which was, again, vividly portrayed in the temple worship. Jesus, he comes to the temple to celebrate Passover, to a place and a time of what should have been solemn worship and adoration of the God who saves his people, that which should have been being conducted in the most reverential manner. And it's here that he's confronted by the issues at hand here. And so let's continue in the text here and we'll see what Maybe we could call a problem of practice here. In John 2, if you'll look with me, verses 14 through 17, it says, "...in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, "...take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade." His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And so Jesus again he comes into the temple, and within the temple courts he finds a, a market of sorts in which animals for sacrificial purposes were being sold and could be purchased, and where money could be exchanged for that which was acceptable for paying the temple tax, both of which, the sacrifice and the and the currency, uh, both were required. And what was taking place here was not necessarily in and of itself um, the primary problem. In fact, the scriptures provide for this in Deuteronomy 14, verses 24 through 26 there, for those traveling a long distance. God said they could bring money, they could bring currency to buy what they needed um, for their worship and for their sacrifices and all, uh, for those traveling a long distance. And you know, if you, if you think about it, the, the time in history that this is taking place and the difficulty in traveling a long distance it 's not like today where we could get our lamb or our goat and pack it up and secure it in the back of the truck and drive to Jerusalem. This was a long and difficult journey for many people, and so God provided for these for people to be able to do this and so what was taking place necessarily was not in and of itself the primary problem and it it probably began, and maybe it was even still being conducted in a in a really a well meaning and, and helpful since you know and and it would have originally been located all of this the selling of the animals and the changing of the the currency it would have been located outside of the temple complex however at some point the whole operation moved within the temple courts uh itself and you know some have understood this and even made the issue out to be that of business that those selling the animals and exchanging the currency were were corrupt. They were charging the people excessively, essentially making religious uh, service into a business. And whether or not that's true, it's really beside the point of the text here is Jesus. He never, he never addresses it. He, his statement in response to what's going on is, do not make my father's house, the temple, a house of trade, which is to say a, a place of commerce, a marketplace. Uh, you know, it, he doesn't really address necessarily the conduct, I suppose, of what they're saying, but rather, don't make my father's house a place of commerce. So the issue isn't really necessarily what is going on, but where it's taking place within the temple courts. And there's a couple problems that are really interrelated, but a couple problems with this. For one, you know, think of all, again, that the temple represented and understand that, that meeting with God, that drawing near to him in worship and adoration and the place and the manner in which he prescri- prescribes demands absolute reverence. coming to the temple for religious practice, religious service, to the place in which God had said, there I will meet with you, there my name will be, it's no small or casual manner to approach this God and to worship this God. Drawing near to God in worship demands holiness and reverence and purity. Think of the, the distractions caused by the activity taking place in the temple courts there. You know, Don Carson, in his commentary, he said it well. He said, instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there is the bellowing of cattle and the bleating of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is noisy commerce. You know, could you imagine walking into the temple there? You know, place yourself there at the at that time. Can you imagine walking into the temple? The overwhelming thought of God's grace bearing on your heart and your mind as you come to worship him, uh, recalling the redemption that he had accomplished on your behalf, recalling his faithfulness and preserving his people through judgment, ready to bring your offering to cry out to God and praise and adoration, and and all around you, the distracting noise of the animals and the business taking place, perhaps the the dust from the animals rustling around and the changing of the money going on. All of this is really to... Profane the worship of God in the very place where he says he would draw near his people. And then, secondly, you know, maybe more specifically, this is taking place within the court of the Gentiles, the the place where non Jews would come to worship and to seek God in prayer, the only place, mind you, within the temple that Gentiles were allowed to enter, the only place that they could come and worship this God. And this temple, Again was to be the place that proclaims the name of the Lord uh, uh, the place where true and right worship of the only true and living God was to be displayed before the nations and think of what all of this said about the reverence for israel 's God as it was occurring in his dwelling place and uh, you know at this time everybody had temples and the non jews perhaps coming out of pagan idolatry, their gods had temples and and think of when they come to israel 's god they come to the Jerusalem temple that place that proclaimed the the name and the glory of the one true and living God, what would this say about their, their, their reverence for Israel's God with all of this going on? And, and think of it in light of the really a primary purpose of the people of God being the people of God, They're to be a light to the nations. And we see that from, from the beginning of the scriptures. We see that God's plan of redemption includes people from every tribe and nation, and, and God's people Israel there through the proclamation of his great name and by their very lives of worship were to be a light drawing the nations in that they too might come to know the one true God and be saved and it's here in this only place where the gentiles are allowed to come and to worship and to seek God in prayer which has functionally been turned into a marketplace full of distraction from what the heart of the temple and God's people were to represent uh, before them now I think we can definitely take pause for a moment here, and I think this is where we can take this and, and and apply it at least in principle to what occurs as we gather together for worship in our own day. You know, the church building, this building or any church building is is not the temple. The church, the body of Christ, is referred to as the temple of the Holy Spirit, spiritually speaking, and the In the scriptures, but physically, this building that we're we're sitting in right now is not the temple in the same sense as the one at the time of Christ there. Now, that being said, though, the building, when we come, this is the place where we gather as God's people corporately each week, week after week on the Lord's Day as a display of our religious service, our worship and praise, our prayer and adoration. Now, could you imagine what was going on there or something similar? Something equally relevant, I suppose. Could you imagine what was going on there to be going on here as we gather for corporate worship? You know, could you imagine the distraction that it would cause as we pray, as we sing, as we listen to the word being preached, as we take the Lord's Supper? Could you imagine the distraction that it would take away from our worship of God? Could, could you imagine what this would impress upon the visitor? You know, perhaps the unbeliever that God has, uh, as we learned this morning really, Uh, providentially, sovereignly, been drawing to himself, and and they make their way into our church. Um, Could you imagine what this would impress upon them, what this would say about how we really think about and reverence our God? You know, what what do our actions as we come to worship say about how we view our God? Now, again, I think we just, you know, uh, we as a people in general, I think we can Take this, at least in principle, to heart. You know, we may not have, even at our church, we may not have a marketplace in the foyer over there. Some churches, some churches may nowadays, but, uh, but we don't have that. But there are certainly actions that take place that can distract, even, even just the, uh, lack of, uh, the lack of, maybe the lack of attention, but there are certainly actions that can take place that can distract from the reverential worship that a holy God deserves and demands. You know I, I brought a, I just grabbed it at the last minute, but um, Josh, I think he's been Pastor Josh. I think he's been I, I love it. I don't know if I've just noticed it recently, but if any I don't know, if you get the bulletin and you look in here, uh, every, once we start our service, our worship, every aspect of it is a, is a it's worship. You know, we do our call to worship our summons to coming and worshiping God, our song of confession and assurance and adoration, and everything we do is, is an act of worship, you know? And and if you think about it, you know, the things that maybe take place, conversations while we're singing and praising and praying, and even sometimes when the preaching's going on about, you know, how was my weekend or what I've been doing or what am I doing after church, phones going off, checking social media while we're, the Word is being preached, uh, Constant up and downs, and you know not to be a not that we need a legalistic set of rules that we need to abide by because things happen. We forget to turn off our phones. Um, we have kids we 've all had some most of us here have had small kids. we know how that can go at times. Um, you know I drink fifteen cups of coffee before service, so sometimes I need to use the restroom myself but uh, but the point is here is to think about what we should should, should consider. I think, is, you know, what should be the posture of my heart? What should be our posture of worship before the God who has himself paid the penalty of my sin in order to give me life? You know, what should be my heart, the posture of my heart when I come to worship this God? Is he not worthy of an hour, an hour and a half of my full attention and adoration and praise and, and just love for, for him and thankfulness to him? Uh, the, the unbeliever the unbeliever who comes into our church or the visitor the unbeliever whether or not they come to saving faith i think we would all agree that they should at least leave with the realization that these people truly love and honor and reverence their god whether or not they come to know this god in saving faith they should look at this they should leave and think wow these people really love and honor their god okay? richard phillips in his commentary he he says something really wonderful I think on this and um, it's a little long it's not too long but I'd like to just I'm just going to read it word for word because I think he says it well. He says what we do in worship reveals what we think about God. A church that worships through dry and joyless rituals shows that it believes in an absent God. A church that stirs up emotional enthusiasm and fills the worship service with entertainment believes in a weak God who needs our spiritual help. A church focused on money reveals a God who is unable to meet our needs, whereas a church that exalts its own celebrities shows its blindness to the glory of God. But what does it say when people reverently lift their hearts in praise? It says they think their God is worthy and great. What do Christians show when they humbly confess their sins? They show that they believe in a holy and forgiving God. What does it say when we commit ourselves to prayer? It says that we believe in a God of power and love. What does it say when Christians are devoted to the reading and teaching of God's word? It shows our belief that God has revealed himself, that his word is truth, with power to save. What does a church say by worshiping according to the Bible instead of the latest worldly fad and fancy? It says that God matters more than worldly approval and that his ways are trustworthy and right. Jesus' zeal for God's house, violently cleansing it from the merchants and restoring it for prayer and Bible teaching, shows us that our success in worship is measured not in the amount of money we take in, not in the number of people we attract, but in the purity and truth with which we worship God and cause his name to receive glory. You see, Jesus, coming into the temple, seeing all that was occurring in the house of God, fashions this whip of cords to drive out the animals, pours out the coins, overturns the money changers' tables, demanding that the temple not be made into a house of trade, essentially, judging by what we have recorded here at least, demanding that the temple be restored to its rightful purpose as ultimately it points, as we'll see, to the Savior himself, and anything less would be to profane the worship due the Son of God. He quote, they, it, it, this little portion that we read, it, it ends with this quote from Psalm 69, 9, Zeal for your house will consume me. And Again, to quote Carson, he says, Jesus' cleansing of the temple testifies to his concern for pure worship, a right relationship with God at the place supremely designated to serve as the focal point of the relationship between God and man. Well, in light of this, we have the response of the Jews and, and, and the disciples as well and the revelation of Jesus. So let's, let's read verse 18 through 22 there if you look at your Bibles. It continues and says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So what we have recorded there is really, it's, it's actually two separate responses by two separate groups. First, the Jews, immediately in light of Christ's action in the temple, and then secondly, his disciples uh, in the future relating to Christ's word and revelation in light of, of their response. So first, the, the Jews immediately respond to Jesus' actions in the temple. What sign do you show us for doing these things? Now Jesus he he or excuse me John uses the designation the Jews throughout his gospel in various ways. Sometimes it's in a general sense, oftentimes it refers to those in opposition to Jesus. Here most likely he's referring to some of the Jewish, Jewish religious authorities. What sign do you give for these things that you do there? Now, pay close attention to their response here because by their words they're both saying and not saying some things. Uh, they ask for a sign in light of his actions in the temple, so uh, notice what they what they don 't say or do okay they, they don 't rebuke him they don 't try to correct him at all for what he 's said and what he 's done in other words you know they don 't seem to be questioning questioning what he is doing as if what he 's saying and doing is wrong. Temple worship is being profaned by turning the temple courts into a place. Of business worship is being profaned by not approaching God with reverence in His house, and in no way are they are, do they ever argue that what He's doing is, is is wrong. So it would seem it would seem as though they most likely understand here that what they've allowed is wrong. God's temple is to be a place of holiness and purity in worship, and rather than argue what He does, they ask for a sign in light of His words and actions. They demand this sign, some miraculous sign. That's what the word there really refers to, especially when it's referring to Jesus. Show us, give us some miraculous sign. Give us a sign that's going to authenticate your authority in correcting or dictating temple worship. Who are you to dictate the worship that goes on in the temple? And it's it's obvious by their response there that they they understand him to be more than just a mere common man. Perhaps he's a prophet. Perhaps it's a claim to messianic status, show us a sign, give us a sign that's going to prove and authenticate your authority over the worship of God. Who are you to dictate the worship of God? So Jesus' responds, well, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, the Jews there, they assume, or seem to assume anyway, a, a reference to the physical temple, and we can see that through what seems to be a sarcastic remark this temple has been under construction for 46 years who could raise it up in only 3 days and this is a this is an important statement actually the the, the the gravity of it is very important. This, is, this statement actually gets brought up later. Uh, you can read it in Mark fourteen fifty eight and fifteen twenty nine. It gets brought up again later as Jesus stands before the high priest, uh, before his crucifixion as a false testimony against him. I heard this man say he could destroy the, the temple and raise it up in three days. And then it's used as a mockery as he hung on the cross. You who said you could raise up the temple in three days, can't you save yourself? It's an important statement what's going on. Destroy this temple and in three days... I will raise it up. Now, it would certainly be miraculous, wouldn't it? Had they the ability to on the spot destroy the temple and Jesus in only three days raising it up, that would, that would certainly showcase a power that only God could possess, but that's really beside the point, is that's not what Christ is, is referring to there. It says, as we read there in the scriptures, he was speaking about the temple of his body. And that kind of brings us to the 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 greater point here, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the temple. He is the true and greater temple. We'll come back to the disciples' response briefly in just a moment. Now, this, I believe, could be one of the most definitive statements about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has come to do. At the very least, in all that this alludes to when considering the importance and the centrality of the Jerusalem temple for for the people of God there the gravity of what Jesus is saying here is absolutely astonishing he's he is the true and greater temple he is the fulfillment of all that the temple symbolized and pointed to think of what we what we those few points that we already talked about of what the temple uh, represented you know we I already mentioned there that, um, that the temple was an expression or represented the grace of God in allowing people back into his presence. And uh, in Jesus Christ, in, his, in, his, in the gospel, and his work of redemption, there's no greater expression of grace than in Jesus Christ and all he does to redeem his people. He is the ultimate expression of grace, if you will. Jesus is the ultimate dwelling place of God with men because he is the God-man come into the world. He is the, the creator, becoming like his creation and walking among them for a time. And in fact, John, he already made this clear if we were to go back to the beginning of his gospel in chapter 1, verse 14, a verse that I'm sure most of you know that tells us the word, Jesus, became flesh, and dwelt among us. That dwelt is literally he pitched his tent or he tabernacled among us. The the creator taking on humanity, the creator becoming like his creation and living and walking among them. Matthew, which uh, Pastor Steve has already preached through, Matthew quotes from the prophet Isaiah about the birth of Christ when it says that they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. John, in the future, well, John writing about the future Writes about this and about Jesus and as the ultimate reality in the new creation, a return to Eden as it as it were. When he writes in the Revelation in chapter 21, verse 3 and 22, speaking of the new creation, he says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, he will dwell with them, and he will be the, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty. And the Lamb. Jesus is the ultimate dwelling place, if you will, of God with man. Speaking of the temple as the house of prayer, Jesus perfectly fulfills this as well. There was an interesting little article by a Presbyterian pastor by the name of Mantle Nance who was talking about praying in Jesus' name. And, and he said that to pray in Jesus' name is to acknowledge that our access to God in prayer comes only through Jesus. To do so, honors the sole mediatorial work of Jesus, and, then, and thus glorifies the Father who appointed him to be the high priest of his people. Uh, we pray through Jesus. He is, fulfills even that. Jesus is the only true place, if you will, of intercession, the only true mediator between holy God and sinful man. It's only through Jesus that restoration and reconciliation to God takes place. Remember that the temple symbolizes, represents this mediating, uh, this mediating between sinful man and holy God, and it's really only through Jesus that that can actually be realized. First uh, Timothy two five, Paul tells us, where there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That which could only be shadowed and pointed to and symbolized through temple worship is realized only in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true and only place, if you will, of propitiation where God's wrath against sin is turned away, appeased, or satisfied. He's the only true and great sacrifice for sin. He's the, the place, if you will, where sin is dealt with once and for all the writer to the Hebrews in the book of Hebrews chapter 10 verses 4 through 14 speaking of this tells us that that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He, He says that, the writer there says, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those things that could only be picture uh, that could never take away all of those sacrifices, day after day, week after week, year after year, all of the sacrifices taking place in the temple could never deal with sin in an ultimate way. They could only picture the, the true and greater sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice that was to come, Jesus Christ. And John, he's already alluded to this as well in the first chapter of the gospel, where he declares Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin's of the world. The Apostle Paul affirms the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where he refers to Christ as our Passover lamb who's been sacrificed. Jesus is the one who is, or who makes known and proclaims fully the glory of God. Just as the glory of God filled the tabernacle in the temple, John tells us, actually drawing us back to the Exodus and some of those passages, John tells us that Christ, taking on humanity, dwelling or tabernacling among us, shows forth divine glory. He tells us back there in that one fourteen four, for we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And again, that, that draws us back to the Exodus there, with the tabernacle and everything that was going on. In fact, in Exodus 32, if you are familiar, you know, Moses asks God, show me your glory, let me see your glory. And God says, well, uh, no man can see me and live. And here, you know, John tells us we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son. Jesus is the one who makes known or who proclaims fully and perfectly the glory of God. In fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us as well that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. Later in John's Gospel, Jesus says in chapter 14, verse 6, another familiar verse, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You see, all that the Jerusalem temple symbolized and pointed to, that separation between sinful man and holy God, the need for reconciliation, the way to approach and be reconciled to God through sacrifice, and and so much more is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the true and greater temple. He is the only mediator. He is the only way to salvation and eternal life. How are we to approach God? How are we to worship God and commune with God? Well, it's only through Jesus Christ. Just as the temple was the center of faith and religious practice, even more so is Christ who fulfills every aspect of the temple. R.C. Sproul once said, Christ is the temple. And all men are commanded to come to him in order to worship and serve the one true God. Christ is the center of faith and religion. Christ is the true and greater temple where all of these things are realized. Well, it wasn't until after he was raised from the dead, we read in verse 22 there, after he was raised from the dead that his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. That's that second response that a... Mentioned there uh, the response to Jesus' revelation and the, the sign that he would ultimately give in regard to the Jews' demand destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Jesus Christ, the true and greater temple, was destroyed. He was put to death. He was crucified, bearing the weight of the sin of all who would ever believe in him. And he did, in fact, raise victoriously from the grave on the third day decisively conquering sin and death, accomplishing the work of redemption, securing everlasting life and glory for all of his people. You see, Jesus Christ, again, he fulfills all of the types, all of the shadows, everything that the temple represented, accomplishing in reality uh, what the temple could only ever point to. Jesus Christ is the true and greater temple. Well, in closing, I I suppose maybe a couple of application, if, if you will, if for Christians, for the Christian, you know, as we look at this portion of Scripture, as we hopefully see and consider how Christ fulfills everything um, that the temple and really all that Scripture points to, you know, we ought to praise Him, I suppose, for His grace and doing for us what we could never do. Uh, we should praise Him and, and, and reverence Him and honor Him and, and Bring him glory because he did what we could never do. Even the, the temple, even though it pictured all of these things were, that were necessary, um, as we read, you know, it, it could never actually fulfill salvation. It was only a picture. It was only a, a foreshadow of what Christ would do. So we should praise him for his grace in doing for us what we can never do. And then, again, as we talked about, maybe perhaps we should examine, consider what is the posture of my heart when I when I come to worship, you know, what what... We do in worship the attitude of our heart, the way we worship God. It really says a lot of what we really think about our God, and you know how should our worship impact those who come? As, as a and I'm speaking of as our church, our local church, those of us who regularly come and worship together. You know what should our attitude and worship, the way we worship our God? What how should that impact the people who come to visit the unbeliever? At, at the very least, again. They should walk out of these doors thinking these people, reverence and honor, they love their God, whether they do or not. For the non-Christian, you know, as we've already talked about, you know, the world would tell you there's, uh, just as at the time of Christ, even now, it's, it hasn't changed. There are many, quote-unquote, temples. There's many ways the world will tell you that there's any way, any, uh, that there's all these different ways to make salvation, to go to heaven, to be right with God, but, but there's not there's one God, there's one way to approach and be uh, reconciled to him, that which was, again, foreshadowed and pictured through that temple worship, but realized in Jesus Christ there's only one way, there's only one way of mediating between sinful man and holy God. There's only one who can bear the weight of our sin guilt, and that's the Son of God himself. And so if there's anybody here who who would ever listen to this and um, you need to realize that if, if you're not in Christ, if you, if you haven't turned from your sin and turned to Christ and faith the one way, then, then you will stand before God as all men will, but you'll stand before him as, as the judge and not as the Savior, because he has prescribed one way, one way to salvation, one way to forgiveness and reconciliation with him, and that's through Jesus Christ, the true and greater sacrifice, the, the, the one mediator and intercessor, the one way into the presence of God. And God's very specific. You know, he's very specific. Uh, you see that throughout the Bible. I think that's one thing you can appreciate, uh, regardless of your standing in faith, is when you look, uh, God is uh, he's very specific. He's very precise in what he prescribes. And, and he's given his son, his one and only son, as the one and only way to be reconciled to him, the one who fulfills again everything that the temple could only ever point to. Amen? Well, let's go ahead and we're going to pray. And we're going to pray, we're going to sing a song, and Pastor John is actually going to come up and do communion for anybody who did not take communion this morning. Uh, if you'll raise your hand, we'll go ahead and pass it out. Um, before, John, before Pastor John comes up here to do it, though, just to give the warning, as is uh, in Scripture, uh, communion is for believers, for those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, uh, those who have been baptized to identify with him. Um, and those not under church discipline, if you're a believer in Christ, if you've been baptized, if you're not under church discipline, if you're in good standing with your church, then we would invite you, if you were not here this morning, to go ahead and raise your hand, and we'll pass out the elements, and Pastor John will go ahead and come up here in a moment, and he will pass those out, and he'll, uh, and he'll go ahead and do communion with us. But before he does, why don't we go ahead and pray together.